let's open our Bibles to Haggai, the prophet Haggai, chapter 1, tonight we cover verses 1 through 16. We come to a major division in the study of the book of Ezra, and it's at this time that we're going to take a break from Ezra, actually for quite a bit of time probably, and we're going to cover two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. Now, if your memory is good, we have covered Haggai before, but it's been a little bit of time, and, and I haven't really found anybody that remembers covering Haggai. Which made me feel wonderful. <laughs> and so, so I think we're, we, we need to swing back by and just remind ourselves of this, the, the message of this prophet Haggai. And so that's what we're going to do. It's, I think it would be certainly appropriate to do that. This is, um, this is a picture or drawing of, of Haggai. You might not can see it too well from where you were. Only, only problem is this was done in 1285. Haggai lived about 520 B.C. So if my math's right, that's what, about 1700 It's a long time in between the two. So we have no idea if Haggai looked like that or not. Probably didn't. But I thought I'd at least show you what one person, uh, one of the artists, the Pisano's uh, rendering of Haggai might have been. To remind you of where we are, at least with regard to the historical context. Let me, let me just kind of get you back up to speed so you see where Haggai is when he's writing this. He was called as a Babylonian, led by Nebuchadnezzar. Finally overran Judah and Jerusalem for the last time in 586 B.C. It's at that point that the temple is destroyed. There is no more official corporate worship in Israel because the temple is the center of Mosaic worship under the Mosaic Covenant. And most of the Jews are taken captive to Babylon. In Babylon, the Jews can't practice formal worship as the Mosaic Law prescribes because they don't have the temple. The temple's been destroyed, and plus they had to be in Jerusalem. They also lacked an altar. Now, some, like Daniel, we know that Daniel prayed, at least privately and then semi-publicly, facing Jerusalem. Maybe others did as well. This is also a period of time when synagogues were established and people gathered together to worship, but it wasn't official worship. It wasn't, it wasn't formal completed, fulfilling worship under the Mosaic economy. They couldn't do that without the temple. It's kind of the same way it is with the Jews today. They can't, they can't worship in their fullest sense without reclaiming that temple mount. And people have asked me if I think the rapture is right around the corner. I don't know. But if, if I wake up tomorrow morning and the Drudge Report headline is, the Jews overtake temple mount, we take temple mount, then then I'm going to start thinking maybe it is a little, they might do a sermon or two on, the, on how close the rapture might be, if that was actually the case. I don't know, though, and the Jews don't have to retake the temple after the rapture takes place, but it certainly would, for me, the things were, were pretty close, I, I would think. So they couldn't worship in their fullest sense under the Mosaic economy. Now, as we saw in our study of Ezra, God moves the heart of King Cyrus, probably 539, 538 B.C., to allow exiles to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem itself, probably in 538 B.C. At least three waves of exile take the opportunity to come back. Remember the first wave that we've been studying in Ezra was about 50,000 of them, led by Zerubbabel and Joshua the priest. Zerubbabel and Joshua the priest. Also, says Bazar was the one who actually came back and said at the time, we don't know if that was Zerubbabel or if that's someone who came back and Zerubbabel replaces him right afterwards. But Zerubbabel is the one 
who reads back the first slip of that cloud to clean up the rubble. And that's how you remember when Zerubbabel comes in. He comes back to clean up the rubble. It appears as though the rubble. It appears as though it appears as though concentrate, please. It appears as though Haggai and Zechariah were two of the returning that come back with Zerubbabel to clean up the rubble. Haggai is going to minister in about uh, 520, August 520, Zechariah, shortly after that, October 520. So the, the Jewish exiles come back to, to rebuild the city. They're very enthusiastic because while they want to do things the right way when they first get back, they want to, they want to do things according to God's prescription. Uh, they immediately rebuild an altar, the brazen altar. They immediately rebuild the foundation of the temple, and everything is going really, really well for them until opposition rears its ugly head. And as we've studied in Ezra, that's what happens. When people start developing some spiritual momentum, then, um, then opposition comes along, and these people couldn't handle the opposition. They were very intent on worshiping in the way that God wanted them to worship in the beginning, but when opposition came in, their spiritual lives that's just one of those things that needs to go to show you we we can never be we can never get to the place where we're just utterly comfortable in our spiritual life thinking that nothing can happen to us as soon as we had this idea run through my head well I'm, I'm in good shape nothing can knock me off my spiritual momentum then, then we're going to be in bad shape we'll see many examples in the Old Testament Elijah Abraham all of us have been in that position before. As soon as we have a great spiritual victory, then we're vulnerable to spiritual defeat. So we need to be really careful about that. And so opposition comes in. They started rebuilding the temple about 536 B.C. Um, opposition comes in, and the temple is, the rebuilding of the temple is placed on hold for 16 second shortest book after after Obadiah, and, uh, and so Haggai was studied first. Haggai begins ministering in August of 520. Zechariah will begin just a couple of months later in October 520. Both have the same message. The, the same message is let's get this thing started. Let's get it going. So that's where we pick up our narrative in Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. In other words, chapter 1. The key phrase chapter. It's actually going to happen twice. Once in chapter 1, verse 5, and the second time in chapter 1, verse 7. The key phrase is, consider your ways. Chapter 1, verse 5, chapter 1, verse 7. That's the theme 
to this particular text. Consider your works. What are your actions? Where does God fit into the picture? And to these people, how important is the opportunity to worship really? How important is it really? Before I continue, I should make it crystal clear that temple worship is not a part of worship in the church age, as we all understand that. And the book of Haggai is not going to be used as a plea for money for the building project. I wouldn't trivialize this important passage and render it simply a gimmick to infuse guilt upon you and to take money. That's not its intended purpose. Now, many have used Haggai that way. Many have over the course of the history of the church, particularly the last 200 years. But I don't intend to use it that way. But at the same time, I do not intend to downplay the message of this short but great book either. We must come to grips with what is really important in our lives. This must be done individually, and it must be done internally. It must be done individually, and it must be done Internally, By that I mean that each of us must be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we can know what God wants us to do with the circumstances that He's put in front of us. And let the Holy Spirit assist us in the formulation of our priorities. And then the Holy Spirit enable us and strengthen us to live consistently with those priorities that He's instilled. So it's got to be done individually and it's got to be done internally. If this is going to be genuine, our motivation for the spiritual life must be internal and not simply external. I knew a fellow sometime, this was about a decade ago, and he was an employee of a major denomination, just like I am, not that you would think of that kind of thing. He was an employee of this major denomination, and his job was to go around the country to churches that were having trouble raising money. Apparently, this denomination reports what kind of money they had each week or each month to the mother organization. And then when things get a little short, then they would send this fellow out to sit and talk with the deacons and the elders and the pastor, interview the congregation, and find out why that particular church wasn't raising the money that they should raise. And I asked him, I was intrigued by that, so I asked him, how do you figure out that this is how much a particular church should have and this is how much they shouldn't have. And it all is a matter of percentages and formulas and metrics and things like that, which I, I, weren't, I wasn't really convinced it was totally spiritual, but that's the way that they did it. And so I decided rather than being a condemnatory, I would just listen because I wanted to see you know, exactly how do you do this? You know, how, what, do, what do they tell people? Because I knew someday it was a nice sermon they were saying, say, tonight's the night. <laughs> You're going to get your money's worth by me sitting down and listening to this fellow wax eloquently for a period of time. I said, well, how do you do that? Because there was a, happened to be a church over in the Memorial area that he was working with, and uh, they were down X percentage. I said, well, how are you going to get those percentages up? Well, the first thing we do is look at the church. We want to make sure his priorities are straight. Well, his priorities are straight. What do you mean by that? They said, well, he, he needs to make sure that, that he's just not neglecting this vital area of unity. So, well, how are you going to, how's he going to work on it if, you know, if he needs to do something? So, well, we, we've recommended that this particular guy, I'll never forget this, preach a series of seven weeks, seven weeks of sermons on the subject of giving. One of the sermons is going to be on the 
but the leadership is for the congregation to be for as well, oftentimes because church people need churches that are for church leadership to see churches where the spiritual leadership is, is legitimate. But again, we see Zerubbabel and Joshua or Yeshua are the two that this is addressed to, Zerubbabel being the civil leadership and just Joshua being the spiritual or religious leadership. But I want you to know in verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, not my people says, this people says. You know how when, uh, when you were upset with your son or your daughter, you'd go to your wife and say, your, your son is over here, go to the store and get your son and make sure you take care of your daughter, see that she's doing. Well, this is kind of what God's doing, this people. He's, he's not disowning them. And this doesn't mean that because of the failure of Abraham's descendants, that the Abrahamic covenant has been abrogated, not at all. But at least at this point, God is distancing himself from these people and from their rebellion. These people, this people who had started off so well when they first came back, had become complacent, and God is distancing himself from that complacency. Now, I want you to note the rationalization that they make in their complacency. It's not the right time to rebuild the temple. And I'm sure in some of the little academic railroad area back there, those Christians told them, they probably got together in, in some of their meetings. And they said, you know, the temple needs to get out of here. But, and they, they probably did it with what the equivalent of a New England or English accent would have been at the time. You know, like when you hear people on the radio, they're speaking in an English accent. They're all automatically smarter, right? At least that's what we think as Americans. At least I do. So I'm sure they sat around in their little groups and said, we can't do you know, you know, maybe had their Oxford sweatshirts on. And it's just not time. The time has not come. Even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. It's just not time. It's a nice idea. But it's just not the right time. And God's going to say, talk to the guy. That's the nicest way. That's the nicest way I can translate what God is going to do here. It's just not time for this to happen. The people say it's not time, but now look at verse 4 and verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your tent of house while this house lies desolate? You see the comparison and contrast there? What did the people say? It's not time. It's not time. And then God asked this. Yes, there is a little bit of divine irony here. Some people would like to call it a little bit of sarcasm. But it's divine sarcasm, so it's, it's legitimate. Don't try it at home. Most of the time when we use sarcasm, it's biting and it's not really that kind. But that's what God's doing here. Oh, really? You say it's not time. And God comes in and says, you know what? Well, it's not time to rebuild the temple, but it isn't time for you yourself to dwell in tattered house while my house lies desolate. Is it time for that? There's, a, there's, a, there's quite a contrast here. And it is a, it's an example, God's pointing out, misplaced priorities. Now, the idea about a, a paneled house is, doesn't mean a lot to us in our culture because if we want to build a paneled den, we probably just go down to Home Depot, buy the paneling, hire somebody to put it up or put it up ourselves, it's no big deal. But it was a big deal back then. Paneled houses, generally speaking, indicated luxury. Gary around Jerusalem is not now, nor was it at that particular time, an area with abundant forests. 
In fact, you remember when they needed wood to build the temple, when Solomon needed wood to build the temple, remember what he got? He went up to Lebanon to get it. He didn't get it from under. Now, they have wood. It's olive wood, mostly. And there were certain trees. We studied one of them this morning, this oak, or perhaps this Picasso tree, or type of tree, whatever it was, that, that probably had a, a big, wide canopy. But those trees were very valuable because that sun is really hot. And I, I would imagine if, if somebody started going out and cutting down a whole bunch of trees in order to build some things, the people that used to sit under that shade tree for shade and comfort might have got just a little bit upset. So they would not use their own wood. They had a lot of stone. And so stone, stones were so plentiful they would make their buildings out of that. But when we, when we speak of paneled houses, it does imply luxury. And some say that paneling only indicated that their homes were finished. Well, in other words, you know, you have a, a trim carpenter that comes in, maybe one of the last things that you do if you're building a new house, and then you have the painter come in. So they're saying, well, just the fact that they've got paneling up means that they're at the end stage. Their house is finished where Yahweh's house is not finished. But the only two places where paneling is mentioned in the Old Testament are in relationship to the temple and to the royal palace. Those are the only two places where the, it is mentioned. So the idea that it just indicates completion is the, is the view that's difficult to sustain. It indicates luxury. So now you see that you, see, you have one more piece of data that we need to put into this equation. The people that are sitting around and saying, you know, it's, it's just not possible to build this temple. At the same time they're saying that, they have houses themselves that have been completed, and they have houses themselves that, by all accounts, are fairly luxurious. So it's not a matter, at least in the beginning, it's not going to be a matter of not having the funds to do it. Now, as we're going to see in the next few verses, that's going to be a problem as Haggai writes. But when they built their homes, it wasn't any kind of particular problem. These people had the financial resources to rebuild the temple. At least when they first got there, they did. But they chose, willingly chose, instead, to build luxurious homes for themselves. You see why why people use this temple illustration. It's easy, but it's not what this passage is really about. This is about priorities, and each person has to develop their own internally, allowing the Holy Spirit to set your priorities. I can't set your priorities. I wouldn't presume to do that. That's God's job. So then we get to verse 5. 
in this key phrase that we mentioned a minute ago. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now, literally, this phrase used to be in the sense, set your heart on your ways. Set your heart on your ways. Actually, that's when understood, that's not a bad way to translate this, but almost every English translation will render it, consider your ways. What God is calling us to do is to do, he's calling his original audience and us as well, is to do an honest evaluation of our own priorities, our own priorities, our own priorities. You shouldn't be talking about this with anybody else in this room other than maybe your spouse. Because sometimes, and oftentimes, hopefully, spouses are going to be working together and have the same spiritual priorities until they're going to function as one. <coughs> but this is not for you to to try to strong arm someone else into a particular priority. That's their business. This is your business. This passage needs to speak to you and to me individually, and then the, then the Holy Spirit can do with it what He wants. So honest evaluation of their priorities would compel them to at least at this time be honest enough with themselves and realize that their lives aren't being blessed. We're going to see that in the passage in the passage too. Things aren't working out for them. They're, they wanted so much. Their priority was to live in luxury. And you're going to see in a few minutes, it didn't work out that way for them. Their priorities were, were misplaced. The giver of every good gift, what the New Testament calls them, every good and perfect gift, cannot smile on spiritual indifference, misplaced priorities, or laziness, spiritual laziness, or any other kind. The giver of good gifts doesn't honor that. Look at verse 6 now. God tells us to consider our ways, to set our hearts upon it, let our hearts ponder it. And then he lets us know exactly what the situation is from his perspective. You've sown much, you've harvested little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. Now, this is, I always ask this, whenever I teach this, I've got to make sure you understand he's not advocating becoming drunk. He's just saying there's, no, he's not. <laughs> he's not advocating that. But, but he just, he's, he's letting us know that there's some wine out there. I'm sure this is not Strong's words here, but there's, there's some wine out there. But there's not enough wine to get inebriated with. Now, I don't know about you, but, but, but for most of us, it wouldn't take that much wine to get us inebriated. Right? And so, so the point is, there's wine, and wine is a staple of their diet. But there's not a whole lot of it. You get the point? This is not a, a, uh, an excuse to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to be put into a purse with holes. I guess not that much. <laughs> That's kind of appropriate for our culture today, isn't it? Or all the time you put money in your pocket, you look and you try to pull it out, and it's not, it's not there anymore. There must be a hole in my pocket or a hole in my bank account or a hole in somebody's bank account. But God's saying, listen, you have these priorities, and this is how it's going. Now, consider your ways actually to be viewed in a, with a dual reference. One, consider your own priorities. And the second reference here is consider how that's worked out for you. How's it working out for you? God says, in, in essence, you made the accumulation of personal wealth your priority. Again, there's nothing wrong with the accumulation of personal wealth. But there's everything wrong with making it your priority in life. And so God says, 
You may be accused of racial perjury. Well, you're called. And how does that work out? And then he goes into this this list this list of couplets. They sow a lot, they plant a lot, but it's a lot harder to reap. And and anyone from farmer can tell you there's no guarantees of harvest. God's God has, either has, has to bring the rain and he's got to bring the sun at the right times, or it's not going to happen. I, I like it. There you eat, but you're not you're still hungry. Ever felt that way? I, I certainly have felt that way too, especially when I'm on a diet or some sort. You eat. But you're still hungry afterwards. I don't like diets like that. I like I like the ones where you eat whatever you want. You fillings all the way. If if you ever try one of those and they actually work, make sure you shoot me an email right away, and I'll be happy to sign up. I'm not trying to do that though. You drink those, and not enough becomes wrong. You put on twenty new pounds this week. Something's not right. Your 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 bad priorities that you thought God was going to bless turned out not to be weren't being blessed at all. And so God says, in essence, how's it working out for you, these priorities that you have? You made the accumulation of personal wealth your priority. Nothing has prospered for these people when they study the Old Testament. In the beginning, God had their priority. They were on the other hand, according to God's description, and things were working out well. Now, they're neglecting God's priority, and God is saying, I'm not going to bless you. Who do we think we are? Do we think that we're somebody that found a bottle on the on the seashore? We take off the top, we rub it, and out pops God as a genie? I mean, we want him to act and behave and interact with us in whatever way we so prescribe? That's not going to happen, my friends. The sovereign God is the God of the universe, the one who created us. He is not in the business of catering to our wishes. And we're not going to say, I'm going to behave a certain way, and guess what? I still want my three wishes. God says, I don't care about that. It doesn't work that way. You want happiness and you want contentment? Because that's why we want to accumulate personal wealth. Isn't it? Because, I mean, and that's just one example from Haggai. We want, but what we really want at the end of the day is happiness and contentment, right? That's, what, that's why you want to accumulate those things, so you have security, happiness, and contentment. Well, if we want to do it as a priority, God's going to say, no, but you make me the priority and you'll have happiness and contentment. So, nothing's prospered for them while they've neglected their duty to God. And really, it's interesting, this, this law of divine irony, or this, maybe it's law is too strong a word, but this principle of divine irony, that the punishment is for the sake of time. And in, in a very ironic way, when these people put the accumulation of wealth as their priority, guess who's exactly what's written here? They don't do it. Or I've seen sometimes the way the Lord works is He goes and gives them the wealth and they have no happiness whatsoever. I've, I've known people that have worked their life to accumulate as much wealth as they could possibly accumulate, and the people said, God, if one thing happened after another one, that made them spend that wealth on things that they didn't think were going to happen. And, or, in another case, I know the person became so incredibly wealthy they never got to enjoy one more thing because their priority was wrong. And that's what this is about. This is not about the accumulation of wealth. This is about the accumulation of wealth as a priority. And I hope that that's not a priority for anybody in this room. I hope this is one of those proverbial preaching to the choir moments. But we need to bring it, we need to bring it out of them because that's the message here. They sought to escape poverty by not building the temple. 
Instead of treating God like they probably in some sort of formula, they thought they did, they cheated him. Again in verse 7, same phrase comes up again. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your way. Set your heart on your way. And so when, when God says something once, it's important. When God says something twice in the same, same chapter, in the Hebrew mind, when they repeated things, it's really, really intense. See that a lot in Psalms, that things will be repeated either in the same in the same phrase or something that's synonymous, parallel. And so we have the same phrase here. God is getting their attention. Now, in my Bible, it's got an exclamation mark in it, and I think that's a correct rendering by the translator. Consider your ways! Exclamation mark. Go up to the mountain, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and glorify the Lord. If you want to do the right thing. If you want the right outcome, if you want happiness and contentment and security, then do the right thing. This is how I want you to make it right. Go up into those mountains, however far you've got to go. And they're probably going to have to go further than they would have to begin with because they already used the wood that was there to begin with to build their own house. But go wherever you have to go and make this thing right. In order that I may be pleased. One of these days you're going to come to the realization that our goal in life ought to be to please the Lord. Sometimes people argue against the idea of blessings, argue against the idea of eternal rewards, because they say that that makes individual Christians into materialistic Christians. Uh, that, that's, that's the furthest thing from the truth. In the first place, it is a biblical motivation. There, there are three motivations that, as I see it, biblically, for us to serve the Lord faithfully. One is that we are punished, and that's the most base motivation that we can have. It's the motivation for a, a legal tie. You go, if you go out into the street, I'm going to find you. you know, if, you, if, if, a little, if you tell this little bitty child, I don't, don't go out into the street, and if you don't go out into the street, I'm going to reward you with a little bit of spiritual discipline. Now, you may try that, but I wouldn't trust little kids. I want, I want them to have the fear of me put into them, so if they go out in that street, they're rearing, there's going to be a lot of pain associated with that. Then once they mature a little bit, then the next thing you say, listen, if you do real well in school, really try real hard in school, the motivation then will be if, if you if you come home with a net, I'm going to thank you. I, I hope that wasn't ever something that you did, um, at least between you and the kids, but I, I would never use that kind of motivation. Once they grow to a certain place, I tell them, hey, listen, if you do really, 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 really well with this, if you take this, you can go to whatever restaurant you want to go to and eat at, it's fine. You know, you get a good report card, I'm going to take you and we're going to do this. You see, that's what, that's the the character trying to tell him as a reward. And that's the next step, too, that God does for us. Certainly, he tells us, you, you misbehave, I'm going to spank you. But then he also says, if you obediently obey me, then, and, and faithfully obey me, then I'm going to reward you. And then there's a motivation that's even higher than that, because it's always about righteousness and righteousness. But we don't start off with that, either in our physical life or our spiritual life. So, God wants, God wants these people to do the right thing. And so he says, go get this wood, let's get this project underway. Do this that I may be pleased and I may be glorified. The implication right now is that at this point, these people are glorifying themselves by their completed homes that are on this side of the river in Ephesus. God says, listen, I'm the one that's supposed to glorify you. I, I have to have the last word. That's all he wishes to convey to them. 
land about the spot where that meets. That's what it costs them to buy. That's what it costs them to pay for those things. And the other thing is, rightly so, is for a long time, that they've shown reverence. They've shown fear, a fearful respect to the Lord. And then in verse 13, the phrase that throughout the Old Testament is extremely then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, is a spokesman for the Lord. He says in Haggai, the messenger speaking to God, and then another place that, that he wrote this. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. Whenever you see that phrase come up in Hebrew Bible, particularly if you see it go through over and over again in Genesis, that's a positive phrase. That means my hand of blessing, my hand of protection, hand of comfort is on you. See, they wanted it their way. And as long as they did it their way, it wasn't going to happen. But as soon as they, can I use the word, repent? As soon as they turn from that way and get back on track and show a healthy respect for the Lord, then he switches to them. And just like that, we, we teach because the Bible teaches and if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And some people teach the idea of penance, that not only do you need to confess, but you need to do a certain amount of penance and good, good works in order to regain God's favor. That's not what happens here. The minute, the moment, the nanosecond that they turn back to the Lord, that's what that means. My hand of blessing is back on you. He's a loving Father who wants desperately to bless you, but He's not going to bless your family. He's not going to bless my family. Got to be the right thing done in the right way, and so he says, "I am with you." In verse fourteen, remember how God stirred up the heart of Cyrus, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus in Ezra chapter one, verse one. Now look, look here. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on behalf of the Lord of hosts. Day on the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius. Again, in the same way that the Lord stirs up the heart of Cyrus, He now does the same for Zerubbabel and for Joshua and for Judah. You see, this this sermon has been addressed to the leadership because the, the leadership has to change first before the people are going to, ordinarily before the people are going to change, but it's not just addressed to the leaders. The people had their hearts stirred up. Now, the very fact that he had to stir up the hearts of Zerubbabel and Joshua indicates that as great leaders as they were, they apparently had fallen into this complacency in this lack of transformation. Sometimes that happens. Even if they're good folks, even if they're great leaders, even if they're motivating people, there are times when you, you, you start to motivate, 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 and if, if, if the people's hearts are dull, the, the temptation is to say, "Hey, good folks, and you come into that place." So God doesn't use a, a leader up to leader that peripheral. He says, "You're right. You need to wait until He moves your way." And so these these men had been had become spiritually complacent because it, it looked like they were content. Spiritual advance and spiritual complacency can breed impatience. Just like spiritual enthusiasm can breed impatience. I had someone tell me one time, 